shut up in my bones from my grandmother Harriet Beecher Sproul Hill. I have the racket of anxiety in my genes. It rivets in ink. Despite this, I leave these marks, this evidence of us undone. In wit's end, it all ferments, and we shape totems of shame from our amusements. The musk of my imagination is as redolent as any untamed woman, and likewise mistaken for mental illness. That was today's guest, Damaris Hill, reading a poem out of her NAACP Image Award-nominated book, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Stay tuned for part one of our discussion. into relationships and you hosted by toby jenkins a licensed marriage and family therapist serving central kentucky each week toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health relationships or self-improvement the name of the show paradigm comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client an epiphany sometimes accompanied by physical reaction that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives. You're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and today I am honored to have Damaris B. Hill. She is an author, a poet, a researcher, and a professor. Uh, her most recent book, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, um, uh, put her up for an NAACP Image Award. She's also the author of Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in American Heartland. Welcome to the show, Damaris. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Toby. Oh, great. I've been, um, you know, I, I heard you, I'm very familiar with, I'm fairly familiar with your work and, um, I am not a big reader, but, um, your poetry is hard to put down and, um, it, it is, it's riveting. And, um, I am, uh, not an artist kind of creative. Um, but I really respect and just admire the creativity that goes into this kind of work. Um, so now I, I, the only thing I can relate to it by is that I am, uh, um, I like to fix things and I like to build things. And I know that satisfaction after I build something and I usually like to sit back, look at it, admire the work, maybe have a celebratory beverage and say, wow, I did that. So um, I can only imagine that some of that has to, uh, you have to feel that way after doing this kind of work. Is that kind of the reward out of this? Um, it's always great to see a book in print, but I don't, um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those writers that is somewhat like Kafka. 
I, I never really feel the work is finished, mm. particularly before the reader has their chance to find their space in it. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I still don't have that sense of completion yet. It's still all of a, a journey and an exploration to me, but the idea of building things, definitely that that's a part of the book. And I think that's the space of seeing and visualizing the book that I'm in now. Um, I rely on kind of techniques associated with the remix. And so the book visually looks very different than other books people read and hopefully it interacts with the mind and the body in ways that other books do not interact with it. So I don't know if it's complete because it's kind of like a clock that's waiting for you to be the cog. Wow. So I don't know <laughs> when it's done, you know? Yeah. So, you know, before we jump into your work, um, I, I'd like my listeners to get to know who you are. So um, how did you like, tell me more about you. Like, where are you, where did you come? Where are you from? How did you know that this was your thing? And then how did you uh, go about uh, doing this as a thing? Um, so my, both of my parents are ministers, but when I was growing up, uh, my father was an AME minister and his family is from North Carolina. Um, my mother um, worked primarily as a social worker and her family is from Bermuda. But that side of my family, uh, they are also ministers. My uncle, which is my mother's favorite brother, and my father were really good friends in seminary. Mm. That's how my mother and father met. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, so I wouldn't think people in seminary would have a creative poet child, so to speak. Aha. Uh -huh. Aha. Uh -huh. That is important <laughs> to think about. It's equally important to think about my father and his sister were one of the first children to attend Arts High School in Newark, New Jersey, mm. both for painting. So my okay. father um, was a painter in high school around the time when his mother was diagnosed for schizophrenia. And because they were affiliated with a church the story goes, what I heard is that my father prayed that if his mother was healed, he would do whatever God asked him to do. Oh, and really? that is how he became. Bargaining. Yeah, bargaining, bargaining. <laughs> bargaining with God. <laughs> bargaining with God. And uh, thus he became an AME minister. Okay. And so this is the grandmother that uh, the first poem in your book, Harriet Beecher Spruill Hill. Is yes. Based Ah, okay. That is his mother, yes. So your father is an artist and a creative. He would not admit it. But through this bargain over mm -hmm. his mother, he went into ministry. Right. So creating an art is in your family. Definitely. And wow. I think when um, I was a little girl and I was hyper creative and hyper imaginative, um, in ways that I, I usually describe as like non-normative because I'm not really, I'm not a realist artist. I'm a very surrealist artist. Mm -hmm. So even the things that I draw look funny mm -hmm. or the things that I sing sound awkward or the things that I write 
are, are conveyed differently than others are used to seeing them. And it's really, really hard when you're a little kid to be an artist because people already think you're goofy. But when you're a weird artist, it's, it, it's like a life of shame. Because like, <laughs> I couldn't color in the lines and didn't understand why, right? Like I really physically could not, for the life of me, couldn't color in the lines. And I remember having a cousin that was an exemplary uh, illustrator and she could color so well and everything would just be so perfect. And I just, I didn't, I didn't have um, that ability or I would color things, weird colors. You know, people are like, mm -hmm. why do you do that? And I'm like, I don't know. That's the way I thought it was supposed to be. But, you know, yeah. there's only space for weird as being creative as opposed to other practical, functional ways of engaging in a, in a capitalist society. But when you're a weird artist, it really um, puts you in a different space. And so I learned very early to hide that hide it i would hide all of my creative stuff i would hide it um now you hide things because it w was there fear of being punished or just not being approved of a lot of fear of not being approved of not really punished but um because my family feared that i would have the same diagnosis as my grandmother mm when all of this hyper creativity shows up or when this excessiveness for um needs for like i want paints i want mm -hmm. instruments i want this i want that right um and it wasn't that my parents because my parents at one time you know they 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 got me a piano and a and a music teacher unfortunately she was like 90 and had probably played for abraham lincoln <laughs> And therefore, she, she was not open to a five or six year old creative, uh, you know, interrogating, mm -hmm. imaginative, super talky little girl. It, you know, it just wasn't a good match. It wasn't a good yeah. match. You know, she wanted me to learn scales and, and drills. And I was like, uh uh. Yeah, that's not how music is created by creatives. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I'm like, mm -mm, that is not what I'm here. And, and, and actually, I think probably some of the first writing that I did, um, when my father had a church in Zinho, Ohio, which was affiliated with Wilberforce University called United Methodist um, Episcopal, you know, AME Church, um, the parsonage wasn't that far of a distance away from the church and mm -hmm. i could actually hear the music being played in the church and so i would like try to write stories or words for that wow and that's the music that i wanted but you know she was giving me scans. <laughs> that's the boring <laughs> stuff right yeah so it's it's interesting um it, in my in my work as a therapist i have come across artists who are in artistic families and that's good but i've also come across uh clients who um for, and basically i would say this is the recipe for anxiety and depression who were artistic in families that were not and they were mm -hmm. so misunderstood um and always felt like no one understood them 
And then the side of them they could never really express and it follows them into their lives. And so one of the things that intrigues me, because I'm thinking about clients I've worked with, is that many of these people end up doing things for a living that are soul sucking because they'd rather be expressing expressing themselves through their art. But instead they're accountants, they're nurses, they're, you know, fill in the blank. And so then they're left to express that art or that side of them as a hobby and that's yeah. not fulfilling. So, yes. yeah. Um, I definitely experienced that. Oh, yeah. Um, I definitely experienced that. I was going to go, um, initially when I was in college, I majored in English because why wouldn't you want to read for your entire college career, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I did engineering. We didn't have to read. You just had to read the bare minimum. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, mm. I wanted, I wanted what I considered quote unquote, the truth. I felt like uh, history, the history department and the historical narratives were not the truth. Hmm. I, I wanted the shadow side of history. And I think, um, a degree in English literature allowed me to do that and allowed me to pretend that I didn't want to be a writer. So I told people, which was actually true, I wanted to go into the FBI, which was very, very true. Okay. Um, and a part of um, preparing to go into the FBI is I became involved with the Air Force National Guard. That does not sound like the place for an artist. Oh, trust me, I almost got kicked out of basic twice. <laughs> the basic okay. is only like five and a half weeks for Air Force, okay? Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I didn't even do anything. This is the thing. I almost got kicked out, right? And it was so funny because I was like 22 and I was going in and I was like, you know, you get your military training, you get your um, background check started and your security clearances started. And by the time I graduate, I'll be in a better space to compete for the academy. And um, I had a drill sergeant who was probably two or three years older than me, mm. right? Because mm-hmm. I, I go in when I'm 22. I already have this two-year-old kid. Um, and he's like, if I get one more note on my desk about what you're not going to do, I said, I haven't said anything <laughs> to these people. And he was like, you don't have to say anything. It's all over your face about what mm. you're not going to do. I said, listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. He was like, if I get one more note, I've read your file. You do not need to be here. You are not running from anything. You are almost Mm. complete. You are almost complete with your college degree. You're finished with your college degree. You are not running from anything. You know, you had a job. (laughs) Like, you're here because you want to be here. It must fit into something. Right. Oh, wow. You do not do what they tell you to do, I'm going to put you out of here. Mm. And I was, you know, I started to say something. He was like, don't you say another word. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, "Uh, yes, sir. And I just left. Wow. Yeah. So so that was the first time. The second time is again, story writing. I'm very proficient at entertaining myself through a story when I should be doing something else. And I got busted doing that in a huge formation. In the middle of know. training. Yeah, in the middle of training. It was like this huge formation. We're supposed to be watching something. I don't know. 
parade or something. I don't know. <laughs> and clearly, I'm like somewhere else in my head. Yes. <laughs> and by some means, it's evident. Yeah, I bet you probably couldn't hide it on your face that you were <laughs> clearly somewhere else. I was clearly somewhere else. I got mm. busted. That's, That's funny. <laughs> well, we're up against our first commercial break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to dive more into how uh, Damaris Hill kind of navigated getting into being able to express her creativity uh, through writing and uh, also some of your teaching. And um, so, yeah, and mental health. We're going to jump in all that good stuff when we come back. Uh, you're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. We'll be right back after this break. This is Toby Jenkins, founder of Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and host of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy is a proud sponsor and supporter of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. At Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, we work with couples, families, and individuals walking with you through life's challenges and transitions. You can find out more about Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and request an appointment through telehealth or in person at www.jenkinscft.com. Com or by calling 859-806-0093. Um, we're back. You're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Uh, today, my guest is Damaris Hill. She's the author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, um, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. And so if you hear noise in the background, that is me flipping through this book of poetry um, as we talk, um, poetry and stories. And um, so when we left off uh, before the break, we were talking about um, Damaris's path from um, basically hiding her art, kind of running away from it, being in a family where, um, well, it was understood because your parents were artists, but um, uh not being able to really pursue it and you in the air force. So then from the air force, <laughs> and then how do you, how do you pivot? You know, it's a mystery how you go from the air force to where you are now. So the next step of that journey was what? So I'm still, I'm still in the air guard. Um, I'm pursuing my master's degree. I'm taking, I, I, I've convinced myself and others that I want to be a researcher in cognitive linguistics. And so that is the process unto which people develop language in mm. their mind. Um, and I wanted to study at that time language development in South African children because they learned about four languages at once. And, um, the way that the brain develops in a child from three to five, that activity pretty much sets the, the or your ability to learn for the rest of your life. So wow. if you're learning four languages at a time, you, you are a very smart and quick learner. So I wanted to study children that learn multiple languages um, mm -hmm. and how their learning developed. Um, and I was taking just as many linguistics classes as I was taking a creative writing classes. And I took a creative writing class with uh, Dr. Monifa Lovasanti. And the gift of that class was she allowed us to write a story and not put our names on it. And that 
that really liberated me because I was mostly known for writing like classicalish stories, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of epics and ancient cultures. Um, and then I decided to write a really contemporary story. Um, and that story was entitled On the Other Side of Heaven. I think it was 1957. Um, and it's a story about um, Americans um, being in, in occupying Panama. Mm-hmm. Um, and the narration was in English and all the dialogue was in Spanish. And you after that Spanish, first by the class, barely. <laughs> Barely. I did have a job at one point as a bilingual secretary, but that was just a gift. Mm-hmm. You know, not uh, not as well as I should. Um, and she asked the person that wrote that wrote that story to stay after, and I stayed after. And this is probably like our first or second meeting. She was like, "You wrote this story," and I was like, "Yeah." She was like, "I think it's one of the best stories read." And I was like, "No, it's not." She was like, "Yeah, it is." I was like, no, it's not. And she's like, I think it can win a prize. Um, wow. I want you to submit two prizes. And I submitted for two prizes, and I won first prize and won, and, and I came the first runner-up in the second. So she saw your and talent that, immediately. Uh-huh. Wow, yeah. And then that was it. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a writer. And so then I kind of had my coming out, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> to my family like this is this is what i do and they're like oh okay really <laughs> i was like yeah <laughs> and then like it, it's still not real right because they're like well you're still teaching right i'm like yeah i'm still teaching <laughs> <laughs> and um then you know it's the ceremony and we go to the ceremony and and that's that's what i'm a writer but I mean, even after that, I still obtained a PhD in creative writing. And I think that was again related to my um, insecurity about being a writer, my insecurity about thinking about whether or not I was good enough uh, to make it professionally as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, worried about financial insecurity mm-hmm. and stability. Yes. Um, yeah, it's still the most insecure part of my life. Yeah, and I guess the the phrase starving artist um, is not just a trivial phrase because in this culture, and I guess in many cultures around the world, um, art is just difficult to monetize and depending on where you are in the world. Um, It is very difficult to monetize, particularly in a culture that does not value beauty. This culture hmm. does not necessarily value beauty. It prescribes and that is the prescription is different from what an, an an artist does yeah from the generating of beauty right mm-hmm. so you never know you never know yeah so you not only write stories though i'm holding your book of poetry but you also write stories um and um, fiction fiction Wow. Um, you know, you're the title of this, the, of your latest work, and you have several that have been published. Um, 
is, um, well, there are a couple aspects I'd like to explore with you. One is uh, the mental health angle of it. So, because this is partially a mental health show. And so yeah. your first poem, which um, you can hear at the beginning of the show, is uh, Shut Up In My Bones, and it's about your your grandmother. Um, and so you were exposed to mental illness early from your grandmother. And then um, I always often make, well, let's talk about your grandmother. So was okay. it schizophrenia? And then what are your um, memories of it? That, was, that, that was her diagnosis. And I actually don't have any memories of it because um, I didn't find out about that diagnosis until she was late in her 30s because my grandfather retired from the military, whom I thought was the sweetest guy on earth. And I wanted to have a husband just like him because he served my grandmother breakfast in bed every day at about 6.30 a.m. Holy cow. This is um, yeah. My wife cannot find out about that. <laughs> <laughs> and like he would come up the stairs with a tray and he would serve her breakfast in bed and she would just have her cigarette in bed. Um, and we, well, I found out that uh, every day he was mashing her, her prescription up into her coffee wow and serving it 6 30 in the morning um when she found out she would not take any food or drink from him anymore even though they remained married <laughs> <laughs> but wow. um so my grandmother was the only one of her siblings that did not go to college and mm -hmm. Every sibling that I spoke with referred to her as being the smartest one. She wanted yeah. to be a librarian. Mm -hmm. She wanted to read for her life, but she got married really young. Um, I say that to say when she was first diagnosed with the illness of schizophrenia, the first thing she did was she got on the bus, went to the library, looked up the medical dictionary, mm -hmm. and found out what that prescription was for. Because, of course, the military doctors told her, oh, it's just for your nerves. It'll just calm your nerves. Mm, wow. <laughs> wow. So she's very smart. Very, very smart. smart. Very smart. Um, very determined. Mm -hmm. And those are qualities I hope I inherited from her. Yeah. Um, and so she stopped taking that medicine because she said she didn't have that disease. <laughs> you know, what's fascinating about it is, um, is that uh, one, um, one of the reasons I've gone into men mental health is because people of color, um, there's a stigma attached to it for good reason. Um, but uh, historically, these kind of mental illnesses have gone undiagnosed, um, unacknowledged. Um, oh, that's just my crazy uncle um, and unaddressed. and um, can have just generational debilitating effects, right? Absolutely. And um, and so it's it's on one hand, it's really fascinating that she did get treatment <laughs> at all. And um, as a community, um, typically we don't know how to manage it or deal with it. There's a, a whole lot of shame and embarrassment from it. Um, Absolutely. And so. Uh, nobody wants that stigma on them 
And so even given the time, you know, I think about my wife's family, my wife's parents and their family and how women were often, uh, boys were preferred. And then the boys in the family got to go to college. Absolutely. Um, so that's a lot to kind of, uh, to deal with at the same time. Um, but you had, you developed a good relationship with her. Um, cause mm -hmm. she sounds like she's influenced you quite a bit. Um, she has in, in a very, I, I wouldn't even say a distant way, but in a way that I don't think people were charting at the time. Um, so I want to say in my family, even though my family is very chauvinistic on both sides, mm -hmm. um, they, they do believe in the equality of education, but that's about it. Yeah. That's definitely about it. So, <laughs> um, but growing up, I guess being kind of, uh, flamboyant and hyper feminine. I mean, everything that I did was to excess. Mm -hmm. Everything was just to excess. If I liked it, it was, I would indulge. Right. Mm -hmm. So one, one thing that I always admired about my grandmother's couple of things. One thing is her dedication to the politics of physical appearance. She, she had that laid. Right. And so mm -hmm. like the lipstick that were available in her house, the jewelry, the clothing that I couldn't fit by the time I was 13 because I was way too hippie. Mm -hmm. it, there were lots of nice clothing around. Um, those things were beautiful, but also my grandparents' house was a house full of books. So one of my favorite books in, the, in that house was a family Bible. So she had the family Bible with all of the names going back probably prior to, definitely, prior to emancipation and coming forward. She had that, that Bible. Wow. Wow. And my That's impressive. aunt, yes. And my aunt, I found out much later had recently had the Bible rebound in like leather and it mm -hmm. had like ornamentation and it, um, the pages were illustrated, um, on the edges. It, it was a piece of art. You know, it was an archive mm -hmm. piece of art. I loved that Bible and read that Bible so much that they went out and bought like a white leather Bible for me to read, thinking <laughs> that I would stay away from that one. Right. And it like never happened. Like it had a white Jesus on it. Like mm. the pages, like it was illustrated, but in a contemporary fashion. It wasn't artistic. It was commodified. <laughs> it was prescriptive. That's what I'm saying. It was commodified and prescriptive. Yeah. And even, even as a, as a very small child, I did not appreciate that style of art. Mm. That's interesting. So, yeah. <laughs> books, books and beauty is what she had going on. Wow. And it made a profound influence on you. And you, the, you, you said the politics of appearance. Um, um, let, let's jump back into that. We're up against a commercial break. Actually, we're up against One Minute Insight. And when we come back, we'll jump into the politics of appearance. Um, I have a suspicion this has a lot to do with some of the uh, uh, femininity politics that you uh, advocate for. And um, so there's much more to that statement. 
Uh, we'll be right back after one minute inside. into relationships in you, and this is One Minute Insight. One of the strange phenomena that took place at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak was the hoarding of toilet paper. Psychologists have attributed this behavior to a need in us to do something or take some action in the face of a crisis. It helps us get through it. I think this is one of the things in play with the massive participation in the protests after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. It gives us something we can go do in the face of this crisis, and it has its benefits. Now, I've participated, and I've felt the benefits from it. So it's not everyone's role to be in the street protesting, but with a movement this big, everyone can find something that fits them, that gives them something to do and to contribute to this crisis we're all facing. It may be donating, it may be supporting those that um, are, are marching in the street. It may be making masks. So finding something to do can help you get through this crisis and manage your mental health. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. One of the biggest stresses that we encounter is money. Money issues strain our family life, create stress in our relationships, and can provoke serious anxiety and depression, and many don't know where to turn to get relief. That's where The Darius Norman Show comes in. The Darius Norman Show airs daily on WTTA-FM 101.2 from 1 to 2 p.m. Darius Norman is a certified credit and financial counselor and author of Rewriting Financial Rules. It's his objective to empower others with educational tools and services to assist them in taking control of their financial and credit issues. Tune in to The Darius Norman Show on WTTA-FM 101.2, and you can follow him on Twitter at The Darius Norman Show. We're back. You're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You. Uh, today, my guest is Damaris Hill, um, and we're talking about um, not only just uh, uh, her work as a poet, storyteller, uh, author, um, but also uh, this link with mental health. And, you know, later on, we're going to talk about the political statement that this book, uh, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, makes. And um, how it's very germane to what's going on right now. But, um, you know, before the break, you're talking about your grandmother who was uh, diagnosed and being secretly medicated for some <laughs> some amount of time uh, for uh, schizophrenia. Decades. Huh? Decades. 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 Oh, it just wasn't a little bit. It was decades. <laughs> decades. <laughs> um, but you, you made this statement. Uh, she was dedicated to the politics of appearance. So, uh, mm -hmm. um, say more about that. What does that mean? Um, that, that means that, that when a person understands how aspects of beauty or grooming and style can generate some social currency and in some cases power even, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I tend to talk about power in society or among human beings, there's like the power of bonds that's intergenerational through family, 
there are bonds that are built sexually. Um, there are bonds that are built or power that is negotiated through um, money and currency. Mm -hmm. And um, then I like to say there's like a power that we don't talk about a lot, but that is the power of desire. Mm. It's a currency of desire, right? Very much so. And so I don't know. Yeah, very much so. And I don't know if my grandmother was very in tune to the currency of desire or was scripted to have a currency of desire because of the time and place unto which she was born and existed, right? Um, as far as uh, a living in Cold War Germany, you know, emphasizing femininity post the Second World War, um, you know, that's when red lipstick became popular. It was your way of demonstrating that you were a patriot if you were a woman. I that's, did not know that. that. Yes, yes. Um, that is the political statement of red lipstick. Um, but it's also an anti-communist stance to say that gender is definitive. Mm -hmm. And if you are a woman, you are this, right? And if you mm -hmm. are a man, you are something else. And so um, my grandmother was beautiful. She had very beautiful coffee bean skin. She had really long hair. Um, and she was committed to this type of, of style. And it's so funny, she was so committed to it that, um, you know, when I began to visit her as a little girl, of course she would take me to get my hair done in the shop, right? Because she wasn't, she wasn't gonna do all of this hair. And then my sister came and then it became all three of us going to the beauty shop every single Saturday. And so then when my parents had a third daughter, my grandmother said, they're just not going to church anymore. She's like, it's just too much responsibility. <laughs> to get them to ready get, on Saturday. <laughs> right. Get, no, she still took us to get our hair done. Everybody got their hair done on Saturday. No, non-negotiable. Everybody got their hair pressed and curled up on Saturday. But the responsibility of getting three girls dressed for church just seemed impossible for her. Mm-hmm. She's like, it's just, it's just too much between the socks, the ribbons, the dresses, the shoes, the purses. Like she, she's just like, no, they just won't go to church while we're here. So for your grandmother, you know, making it a political statement in that time, um, of especially black women's position in society, um, it, it was more than just a surfacey show, very much a um, I guess the way, I, the way I'm thinking about it is a um, reclaiming some dignity and Again, positional power. Social. Yeah, um, that's I, I, that's fascinating, extremely fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so that, that political statement made a huge impact on you, and um, you mentioned the the word. Uh, the power of desire or currency of desire, which the way we, you know, I, I don't, I guess, well, yeah. Um, the way we socialize women, that is uh, actually men and women. Um, we don't talk about that a lot, but it undergirds a ton of stuff. Um, and I see it from a therapy standpoint, especially when I'm working with, with couples, especially couples that have been together for a while because early in their relationship, that desire was there. 
and couples often don't know how to maintain that desire and they can't name it, but that's the thing that's, that's, uh, that's missing. But your grandmother was on it and understood she it. On it. She was on it. And I think she was the inspiration for me to understand it, but I understand it in a different way. Um, I, I use the camouflage of desire because I know I'm not, um, I'm not polite. And You're I'm not polite? Not, I'm, not, I'm not always polite. Like sure. I, I have a, a motto that I recently adopted. It's not my own, but I, I once saw a sign that said, uh, do no harm and take, take no stuff. And I think <laughs> that is like who I am. Right? Mm -hmm. But <laughs> like politeness often gets in the way. You can spend so much time strategically being polite that it makes your goals unobtainable as a woman. True. Yes. So part of my maturity was just to get rid of that. Mm. And it became compulsive to get rid of that impulse to be polite. Because as an artist, if you're a polite and tiptoeing artist, what are you doing? Like you can't get your point across. And so my anxiety in a way becomes a fuel like it's it's the fuel to flight instead mm -hmm. of restricting me yeah so you you've kind of talked about a different a number of different ways that um mental Ill, mental illnesses influence your work as an artist and also um i guess in a world where you're surrounded by a bunch of linear thinkers and um, being a creative thinker, <laughs> being a creative thinker has to be exhausting. Uh, it is. Uh, um, so then um, you, you have like with, with what you just said, I, I would imagine that you have uh, developed the kind of advocacy for the way you think and work to not be apologetic. But that had to, be, that had to have been a process. It is a process and it's still a process. And that's where the, the politics of physical appearance come in and the currency of desire. Like mm -hmm. I have to look a certain way in public because I'm not going to be polite. Like I have to be forgiven up front. Mm. The way I negotiate the world, I have to be forgiven up front. Mm -hmm. You now, have to decide that you're going to forgive me before I open my mouth, <laughs> before, before I begin negotiating power with you because I'm unwilling in most cases to give power up yes so we're gonna have a, a relationship of any kind i'm immediately gonna assess what my power is in that situation okay and it seem aggressive yeah now um does it matter um how much of it uh is attributed to you as a woman of color or just being a woman or it's definitely the intersections of me being um, black and a woman, because there are in when uh, and I'm just going to say because I don't know how to not say it. So in situations where I occupy whiteness, mm -hmm. right, whether that's in a professional situation or um, mostly in a professional situation or in a situation, um, when I enter that space. My human connections with people are often buffered by their assumptions of who I am. Yes. 
for sure. So part of the negotiating the politics of physical appearance and using desire as currency is to come into the room and immediately queer their perceptions of who I am within the context of the lens of desire, right? Mm -hmm. And then to just be the warrior that I kind of can be sometimes, even mm -hmm. when I don't want to, um, and, and achieve whatever goal that I have for that space, which may be something as easy as buying a toothbrush and getting a coupon, or it may be something more complex, like getting a raise, you know? Right, yeah. And these are kind of, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, you bring up, um, uh, I had a discussion with some guests on my show earlier, uh, in earlier in the season, um, we we're talking about black men and depression and having to, um, the way my guest described it essentially was, uh, as a black man in a corporate setting, having to wear a mask and, um, not be able to just be himself. Um, and in particular, uh, guarding, how can I, how did he, I can't try to remember how he put it, but basically guarding, never putting himself in a position where, um, the stereotypes of who he is, um, gets kind of brought out in the circumstances. So he mentioned having to be funny, um, having to protect, uh, his coworkers from his anger. Um, and so, and needing places and spaces where he, he didn't have to think about it, but just how taxing all of that is versus just being able to show up and be who he is. That's what this totally reminds me of. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But the difference in what I'm saying, friend is saying is that early in my life, I learned about the masking because of my, you know, my constant public affiliation and, and, in 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 the religious society right mm -hmm. like you know in, in terms of respectability my my parents being ministers but i've traded in those masks for what i consider drag now so i'm not being a character of myself i'm just dressing as someone else like i love rupaul's statement that we're all <laughs> born naked everything after that is drag yeah completely understand <laughs> <That's so true. laughs> It's so true. Yeah. I completely understand that the hyper femininity that I may bring into professional spaces is drag. It doesn't mean that I don't enjoy being a woman or I don't enjoy being girly girl because I do. But if I'm at home, I'm not in drag. And like I joke among my friends like, oh, this is a 60% drag day. This mm -hmm. is a 90% drag day, you know, and, and negotiating how, how much I'm going to indulge in the drag because I no longer have the patience for the mask. Yeah. I just don't have the patience for the mask. And, you know, to kind of link this back to uh, mental health and well-being, um, anytime, and this is my own definition, but anytime there is a difference between uh, who you are and who you portray yourself to be, it's the recipe for anxiety and depression, either one or both. Um, yeah, so we're up against a commercial break. Um, today, uh, my guest is Damaris Hill, and um, we're talking about mental health, the creative process, and 
her uh, most recent book of poetry, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. We'll be right back. help positively transform schools, then let me, Joel Cotty, keynote speaker and facilitator of the professional learning, Ignite, hashtag love in schools, put deep passion, purpose, and joy back into your classrooms, hallways, and school events. Share my contact information with a principal or district leader near you. My phone number is 859-967-8510 and find me on Twitter and Facebook at Ignite Love PD. Uh, we're back. Uh, you're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Um, I'm Toby Jenkins. Um, today, my guest is Damaris Hill. And um, we've been talking about Damaris's background in writing and, you know, one of the things that really struck out, stuck out to me, especially as a non-artist and given the times we live in, um, to be, this is a full confession, um, I've always been a lover of music and I don't think I have under, I've completely understood and, eva- and appreciated the value that art in general uh, provides. And especially in the last decade or so as you kind of see especially like in education arts being chopped out of uh education budgets it's more of a supplemental thing children get to do and we'll probably get to your work with uh with young women in particular later but you know i wanted to pivot to um your most recent book so your most recent book of poetry a bound woman is a dangerous thing um it, it definitely makes a a political statement. And so, you know, as I've read it, um, my interpretation of it, and you have to really correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, it's an advocacy book for women, women of color in particular. Um, it's filled with just powerful moments and statements about the plight of women of color. So it's a social justice book. It's an empowerment book. Um, is definitely a political book. So um, now I'm, I've mentioned before my creation, my creativity is in a different kind of a realm. So what was the, uh, I guess, inspiration for this set of poetry? And like, what did you want to achieve when you started out uh, with this project? Well, um, the achieving is a hard, harder question. So I'm going to think about it as I'm answering the first question. So as I began to um, look into, you know, um, America's history with incarceration, particularly as related to women, I, I came across a statistic that said, you know, as we're discussing all of the men that are being put in prison and exonerating the men that have been put in prison wrongfully or early releasing some some men that receive very stiff penalties related to uh, to to you know, nonviolent offenses. Um, we're ignoring the fact that uh, the population of women inmates increased over seven hundred percent 
And when it comes to black women inmates, the statistic is even higher. So it's over 800%. Most of these women are parents and manage families on less than $20,000 per year. Wow. Most of these women are also incarcerated for nonviolent offenses, and a lot of them related to addiction, which I can a public health crisis that mm-hmm. we need to address, and a mental health crisis. Um, addiction, and as a sidebar and riff, I also consider racism a public health crisis that we have not addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so I, I, I don't, the current, the current system that we have for incarceration in prison, this, some of my friends do not believe in abolition and getting rid of prison. I, as an artist, like to dream that if we took the $72,000 a year that we might spend on an inmate, and equally divide that among our education system and our health system, we can create another system of health that is more robust, that'll fit the needs of individuals in our society, including complex mental health issues that can take the place of the current carceral system. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. And I also believe that people can be educated to a point that um, survival strategies that garner economics, economic stability in impoverished situations may not exist in the same way. Mm. May not exist in the same way because we can do nothing with greed, destruction of greed. So I just hope that um, by you know building a robust public education system that we might create a more stable economy that will provide more recent opportunities for people to avoid incarceration. Right. Right. So a lot, so, you know, back to the, so their profiles of, of uh, women, women of color in particular, um, there some, some names the general public may recognize others may not, but um, you've written about, women of note that you've written about, um, can you talk about them and like, who were they? And then like, uh, like this, like when I read it, um, I felt empowered. Um, and oh, okay. huh? yeah, well, <laughs> and I'm not a woman, but, um, reading about, um, like Ida B. Wells, um, in that influence, uh, this poem in particular, and there are a couple other names that I, re- I immediately recognize. But the women of note that you wrote about, um, can you talk more about this creative process and um, like what the reader may experience from reading this these various poems about? Especially, and you mentioned earlier, these women uh, at one time or another. Uh, were in positions where they moved things forward, but probably at the time, I know Ida B. Wells in particular, um, they tried to run her out of business. Um, don't write about lynchings. Um, um, her work was attacked, uh, belittled, every word you can think of <laughs> at the time. 
So, uh, so yeah, can you say more about some of the more uh, well-known women of color that you've written about in this book? So like, um, I, had, um, I don't have any proof that, sh that he had, um, that she has been incarcerated, but one, one of the plays that are on the word bound in the title to talk about the ways that Black women can be systematically um, marginalized or oppressed. And even with all of the HD intelligence and allies that Ida B. Wells had, of course they tried to restrict her access to the First Amendment. Her people also don't know that, that um, Ida B. Wells was also a staunch advocate for the Second Amendment. She believed in Black have a gun and know how to use it because <laughs> they're out of control. Now, mm -hmm. I don't advocate for, um, I think I think the Second Amendment needs to be uh, modified and updated for our current space in society or maybe, the, anyway. Hey, um, Bobby Wells believed that you had the right to defend violent crimes, particularly those associated with lynching. Um, and so it was important to talk about Ida B. Wells for a couple of, one of the reasons I found so profound is that Ida B. Wells actually got into uh, anti-lynching advocacy because her best friend's husband lynched. And so I also want to talk about these people that are bound in love. She so loved her best friend that she national anti-lynching campaign so that other women and other families would not feel that pain that she witnessed right you know, that that's love mm -hmm. that's love but, yeah. um also uh i'd like um to talk about each of the women in um in a complexity not not in a linear or a historically reductive fashion. Mm -hmm. So we learn all the time that Ida Wells was a journalist and an educator. People do not talk about her being at the forefront of demography and statistical science as yes. it was emerging. Yes. I mean, the newspapers were just for lay people that didn't understand the complex stories that were being told in statistics. And people don't give her credit for being at the forefront of that methodology and science and actually using it to really alter the nation state of the United States of America. Absolutely. Alter it. And so visually and when created. so visually when I look at the the several uh poems you have uh written about Ida B. Wells, there are formulas in there. Um now um I am not as creative and I would have never thought to put the form put formulas in here, but that's a tribute to her uh, con contribution to demography. Um, Delta V equals C. How does that fit into a poem? It's absolutely brilliant <laughs> from my, from my, uh, my observation. Um, and so that. Uh, it's about Lambda speed of light. That's his speed. It's not a Delta, it's a Lambda. It's a Lambda. See, good. Um, you also write yeah. about... Um, what they 
say. They do a little bit, but I mean, that, that is truly creativity and poetry right away. You, you talked about Ashada uh, Shakur earlier. What was the influence with her? Well, um, like Harriet Tubman, um, researching her life, her commitment and love for ideas of liberation and how they intersected with the experiences of Black people can only be paralleled with Harriet Tubman. Mm. She, was, she was committed to the liberation of, of, of Black people, not only from um, like what we would call slavery and bondage, but even extending into the systematic and socialized oppressions, still against. And for, for her to give all of her talents and her life work to the liberation. Of, I mean, that that's huge. Even at the expense of not being able to see her family, even at the expense of the possibilities of life imprisonment, she was committed to providing others with a more humane life. Mm. That is yeah. a huge act of love. And that, sure that act of love, similar to Harriet Tubman, made her a criminal. How dare you? want to love black people like this in our white supremacist fictionalized white nation mm, yeah you know you, you bring up harriet tubman um and that was one of the uh i don't know if it was a credible source but that was one of the defenses against putting her on the uh, 20 dollars bill the fact that at the time uh she was a criminal because what she was doing was illegal um, which I had the same look you have, <laughs> like it was incredible to hear that defense, but we're up against another commercial break and, uh, we're talking about a bound woman is a dangerous thing. You know, I failed to mention that this book was uh, nominated for, well, actually Damaris was nominated for an NAACP image award based on the writings of this book. Um, so we'll be back after this break and more discussion around uh, the inspirations that, are, that led to uh, this book of poetry. We'll be right back. If you have a relationship therapy or personal growth question you would like answered on the air, email me at toby at paradigmradioshow.com. You can find archive shows and additional details about guests of the show at the show's website, www.paradigmradioshow.com. You can follow weekly one-minute insight posts on the show's Instagram and Twitter feed at Paradigm Radio Show. For archived episodes, you can find episodes wherever you subscribe to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You is brought to you by Jenkins Professional Services and Hype Media Global. Thank you for tuning into Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You with Toby Jenkins. Join us again.